Welcome to The Leadership Mind with Massimo Bacchus. This show is all about the mindset of leadership, the stories, assumptions, self-limiting beliefs, and perspectives that either create or destroy your ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with experts in leadership development, coaching, learning and development, talent management, human resources, and most of all, from those in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm an executive and team coach and leadership development facilitator with a relentless curiosity and passion for helping people, teams and organizations thrive in pursuit of their vision and purpose. The pursuit of purpose is a combination of doing your actions and behaviors and being, how you accept and allow. The mind is where the connection between our being and doing and our intent and actions occurs. The goal is to bring you new perspectives, insights and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes, curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly, and community, where we all share in our growth together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Mind podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dan Eds. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Dan's a published author, and he just finished his book last year. Um, and he's going to be talking about that and give us some insight into the research that went into the book, what's it all about, and, and ultimately, what are some key takeaways that, that we can take and apply in our work lives today. Uh, Dan helps senior leaders design high-impact cultures of courageous and engaged employees the result is that we can hack, uh, crack the code of sustainable competitive advantage. Um, he's a managing director at the Praxis Solutions Organization, and their mission is to help organizations bridge the gap between strategy and execution. As I mentioned, Dan's an author of Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership, Cracking the Code of Sustainable Team Performance. And released it last year, I want to spend a lot of time talking about the research when it is Dan poured his heart and soul into this, into this book. Uh, a labor of love and some really terrific insights. Dan, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you. This is going to be fun. I like to start off these conversations uh, with focusing on you and your origin story. So if you could give us some of the, the backstory as to um, what went into crafting the, the Dan Eds that we're talking to today and the author of this book. Well, it's a great question. Let me let, let me approach that from the author of the book. Um, since I'd be going back a long way to give you the, the origin story, but um, there was a number of events that that triggered um, me to look at this this book and the idea. And it was not one single event, but there was a number of events where finally one day I woke up and I said, you know, I've spent my career trying to help organizations become more effective and efficient. Let's call that process improvement, some kind of organizational improvement work. What I found out though, was that there was something that was even more important and that was organizational culture. You know, I think it was Peter Drucker that said, uh, culture uh, eats strategy for, for breakfast. Um, and I actually think that that is fundamentally absolutely true. So, but let me give you one of the stories that sort of triggered this thought. 
Um, true story. Uh, I had been asked by a large state agency. It was actually a Department of Motor Vehicles, so one of the largest of, of almost every state agency, uh, state government. And uh, basically, they said we have this division over here that's um, overloaded with work. Um, we were coming out of the recession, so we're looking at 2012, 13-ish. Um, they need some help. They're 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 um, depressed as a division. I mean, they're, they're uh, the, even though they're they had no loss in, in workload during the, during the recession, their budgets had been hammered. They had lots of layoffs, and they were they were kind of a mess. So they said, we would like for you to, to conduct a lean workshop to help them identify their processes, map those out, strategize on how to improve their processes so that they could simple, simplistically go home on time at the end of the end of the day and not have to work weekends. So uh, at the end of four days, we had a, we'd had a terrific uh, exercise. We had two, I must say, gorgeous value stream maps um, displayed on a wall. And, and if I may say so, they were works of art. They were really good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, we also did a spaghetti diagram that tracked an invoice through the flow of their office. And we discovered that every invoice, uh, and since they were a funding agency, they processed a lot of invoices. Every invoice had to pass through the financial manager's desk upwards of seven times before it ever was processed. So they were having to do the miraculous every month just to do their work. At the end of four days, we had, you know, we had these value stream maps. We had uh, three or four really simple, um, easy to do initiatives that would have really transformed their organization. Not one initiative uh, would have required a, a budget appropriation or approval from the governor. At the end of the, end of the four days, um, one of their more experienced leaders um, walked up to the manager. And this guy was probably 6'2", 6'3", weighed 225, 250 pounds. Grabbed the manager by the lapels of a sport coat. Lifted him up so he's right on his tiptoes and shakes him back and forth, his head's going, you know, bobbing, shakes him and says, if you don't do something with this, don't ever, ever again ask me to help you with this kind of stuff ever again. And so I'm thinking, um, this is really interesting. <laughs> uh, the long story short is not one initiative was ever implemented wasn't because of bad people, bad leaders. It was, there was a system, there was a culture that was driving all of this, all of the decision-making that did not require senior executives to actually listen to their frontline staff and give them the flexibility and the empowerment to actually make change. And that's when I thought to myself, there's something else going on here. And that has been become uh, basically an obsession for the yeah. last four years. Yeah. Well, uh, let me summarize that story, Dan, make sure that that I got like the real salient kind of essence, essence piece of it. Um, you were essentially standing in a room where there was evidence 
clear evidence all around you to suggest that um, you had identified the root of the problem and had even come up with some pretty simple solutions. Like if it was a problem that could be solved, there's no reason not to do that. And yet because of the culture, because of the hierarchy, because of the, uh, the old way of doing things, the fear of this gentleman who was, was uh, shaking the the manager Mm -hmm. um, came to fruition. He, he, literally knew what was going to happen before it happened. Um, maybe having a strong understanding of the culture and ultimately all of that knowledge went to waste. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, most of those projects that I've done in my career, almost invariably in the first day or two, someone's going to say, you know, we've done this before. Yeah. And, and of course I'm like, well, yeah, but you haven't done it my way. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be different. And, and, you know, obviously there's enough times when it's been different. And so, you know, it hasn't been a disaster, but there's been more times than I would really care to admit when, um, yeah, it, nothing happened. And it was the same thing. There is this, I call it a system, uh, but there is this system on the background that did not train leaders how to empower their staff. They talked about it. We talk about it all the time. You know, you need to empower your staff. That's great. How do you do that? And then when you empower staff, that also that means that you have to give up a little bit of your own power as the leader and give it to somebody else. And that can be a frightening thing. Yeah, there is a there is the mechanism, the culture of the system that will ultimately mm-hmm. drive the success of the change, regardless exactly. of how clear or exciting that change might be. Everybody could be enthusiastic and say, we have this process that we have to do something seven times. We could take that Mm -hmm. down to two and give us all this time back. Um, But that's all moot if there isn't the support in the system. Right. You're saying is ultimately the culture within the organization. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, uh, the the whole concept behind the book is that leadership Traditionally, we look at leadership as, well, it's it's my leadership, it's your leadership, it's my style of leadership, you do leadership your way, you know, four or five people, they all do leadership their own way, if they even understand what that means. But if we turn that coin over and look at it from the standpoint of the organization, the organization is best served if there is a common way of looking at leadership and if, it, if we understand it as an organizational system. So um, as an example, in uh, let's say you've got an organization, I don't care what kind, healthcare, manufacturing, education, high tech, say it has a thousand employees. Um, that means there's probably gonna be somewhere between 90 and 110 executives, leaders, managers, anybody who is in charge of other people. So in that organization, every part of that organization is going to be understood in some kind of a systematic way. They have a system for marketing. They have a system for engaging with, with, um, with, their, with, their, with their customers. They have a system of doing HR, a system for finance, and everything is systematized until we come to this thing of leadership. And Dan, just to clarify, when you say system, are you like, is it a process? You mean there is that there is a how-to? Yes, there is a how-to. 
And it could be a financial system. It could be a personnel system. It could be just a how-to of doing process improvement. You know, there's several different ways of doing that, but it's a how-to. Until we come to this thing of leadership and it's a, well, you do it your way and I'll do it my way. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, then we'll fire you and get somebody else. But high-impact organizations, the organizations that I, that I researched in this book, who are doing some extraordinary work, uh, they don't do it that way. They have a how-to-do leadership. Um, you know, just one really simple but very large example is the United States military, uh, specifically for my research, the U.S. Army. Um, they have one way of doing leadership. It's called servant leadership. And if, if your personal style doesn't fit, you're not going to be an officer in that army for very long because they're going to teach you and train you to servant leadership because they have found that that, uh, that servant leadership is the, gives them the best probability of keeping casualties low and the probability of success high. Imagine, you know, you've got 150, a company of 150 soldiers, and they get ambushed. It happens. If there were four or five officers, each one operating to a different style of leadership, how many soldiers are going to die because of that chaos? Instead, the Army teaches one way of doing leadership. It's their way, and it's based on the principles of servant leadership. Do you find in your research, and, and I think in any case of the military, when your life is literally on the line, uh, the argument is very simple to say there, there needs to be a consistent process or how-to of leadership. Mm-hmm. You think about organizations, maybe in faster-paced cultures, uh, where the individual identity is important, and we think about inclusion and diversity. Um, in your research, did you find any tension, or, or what was that inflection point of the individuation, while also the acceptance of a singular leadership philosophy? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really good question. And the reality from what I saw is that diversity and inclusion is enhanced, um, even thrives when there is a single way of doing leadership. Now, obviously, that way must respect the voice of the individual worker individual leader. So I'll just give you one example. Um, manufacturing company that I that I researched uh, for the book, um, 200 employees. Um, when I first uh, talked with them, I asked, is there an overarching way that you approach leadership? And again, they said, it's servant leadership. And then they went on to explain, servant leadership is a pathway to a culture of uh, where where every worker is empowered, literally empowered, to seek, find, and eliminate waste in the design and manufacturing processes for custom furniture. Uh, 200 employees generate themselves, on average, five to six improvement initiatives every year. Each one saves the company about $1,000. It's the equivalent of extracting 4 to 5% of gross sales out of their cost structure each and every year. 
in doing that, though, they give every employee a common voice. And it's, we want you to help us find and eliminate waste in our manufacturing and design processes so we can create more value for our customers. And when we do that, we can, we can take some of that value and we could give it all to the customers. We can give it to you as the employees in terms of bonuses and 401k contributions and wage increases. So, uh, and uh, this particular organization, they're hiring a lot of people who are new to this country. And, uh, and they're giving people who don't necessarily speak English all that well, a voice. And when uh, the, 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 the crazy thing, when I was sitting outside their offices, getting ready to go in for my tour, it was, it was, it was almost weird. People were smiling. They were happy to be going to work. I walked into lots of organizations I can't, I, I can't tell you, I ever, I ever walked into one where so many people were smiling to go in there and you walk in into their manufacturing plant, people are sitting in, in work groups and they're talking. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a stunning thing when you see it. I don't think they have any problem with diversity inclusion at all because they've given everybody a voice. Yeah. And there's feedback around the value of that. I mean, clearly. immediate feedback. Yep. Yeah. Um, in, in the research, you've talked to different organizations around identifying what is their singular focus of leadership and, and then what's the diversity within that or the flavors of it. Did you notice across organizations consistency of what that perspective of leadership was? Yes. Um, and that was really at, at the root. So I'll give you another uh, example. Um, a very large healthcare organization they operate two hospitals. They have almost 10,000 employees. They are consistently ranked as one of the safest hospitals in the country. They're in like the top 5% of, uh, of all hospitals. Um, some have even speculated they might be one of the safest hospitals uh, in the world, which um, doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that the data says that there's 161,000 people that die every year because of avoidable accidents in hospitals. So safety is a big deal. They start out with a singular core value of respect. Respect for the worker, respect for the work, and respect for the patient. That singular value of respect drives everything that they do. So when you say respect for the worker, does that mean that the voice, the opinion uh, of that worker needs to be heard, listened to, and, and valued? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at what they call foundational behaviors, in other words, they've got like 10, they call them foundational behaviors, and they expect every leader to model these behaviors. One of those behaviors is listen to understand. So they're, they're taking a lot of traditional leadership concepts and flipping it around and saying the job of the leader is to listen to their staff, their workforce. And oh, by the way, um, if, uh, if I was working for you and I have a problem and I need to talk to you about it, 
if I go to you in your office, there's two things that are wrong with that. Number one is uh, I should not be coming to you with a problem. You're supposed to come to me out of respect for me. You as the leader of my, you as my team leader, you come to me out of respect. Second thing is you are taught and trained not to be my problem solver. Because when you do, you are disrespecting my position as the frontline worker, the one who's dealing with that problem, the one who has the best perspective on that problem. Now, you may help me think through the problem, who else is involved, maybe who else I need to talk to, you know, help me understand the breadth and the scope, the depth of that problem. But you are not to solve that problem for me. And as my leader, as my coach, my manager, you are trained not to be my problem solver. So in this organization, there is um, an understanding between manager and the, their direct reports that the lines of communication are always open so that I don't need to go to my manager with the problem. They're already aware. They're, they're coming to me. So there's a very much of a, a true servant orientation there to, to say, how can I be of service to you as, yep. as somebody that I'm supporting? Right. Um and there is an acknowledgement that the, the best problem solver is the person who owns the problem. Right. So what role does the leader play in that case? Well, like I said, it's really to, um, you, might, you might help me understand the breadth of the problem. So it's not just a problem with, with my specific work, because that, that process that I'm working on, there's probably another person, two or three or four that are downstream from that maybe upstream. So uh, you might help me think through, okay, there's 10 other people that are involved with this. If you change one piece, you're going to affect 10 other people. So make sure that your solution, or you're talking to me, make sure my solution um, uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be a positive for those other 10 people. Uh, you would also be trained and expected to do uh, at least one, maybe even as many three lean initiatives each year. It's a very lean organizational culture. Um, actually, this, this, this hospital, um, it was the first hospital in the world to adopt the Toyota production system as their operating model. They now teach it all over the world. Um, and uh, you, are, you are expected as a manager to conduct like I said, one to three lean workshops or initiatives every year. Um, so you might say, if it's the if my problem is big enough, you might say, "Hey, wait a minute! There's ten other people that's connected to this thing, and other and other organizations. Let's do a let, that's a great opportunity to do a, a lean engagement, and let's all look at it, and so we we can really nail nail down and work through how to really improve that whole process." So there's some expertise in, in um, framing the problem and helping to design the solution without um, solving it for, for the person. Right, right. As I'm hearing this, Dan, there are some, some clear themes that, are, that have come out of your research and your work. Um, a singular focus or a shared understanding of how we define leadership 
whether that's in uh, core competencies or foundational behaviors, values for the organization, but something that's like consistent and ingrained right. um, so that it goes beyond just being a poster on the wall that says, here's what we say we do, but that it's right. actually supported within the business. Right. Um, that there is a, 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 a safe space so that people feel a sense of community, psychological safety, connection to their work and in their work. Yep. Uh, and they feel seen and heard and that there is yep. space for them to share their points of view, their pain points. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Improvement. Yep. Yep. What else? Well, um, so uh, one of the fascinating things um, uh, that I found in this organization was the intentional uh, energy they put into developing their people. Now, one of the things that I found in my research is that high-impact organizations are obsessed with value um, and creating uh, and developing value anywhere they saw it, really in three areas. One, developing their people. Two, in developing their use of financial resources, always seeking to do more with less, not because of some outside you know, agency is hammering them to do more with less, but because they want to do more with less because that adds value to their customers. But also in innovation and and recognizing that knowledge, and we are, you know, we are now in a knowledge-based economy, that knowledge is a resource that can be developed. And so this particular organization, they are, very intentional about developing their people, their financial resources, and their knowledge. <clears throat> but when it comes to their people, though, and this is one of the things that got me so excited um, in, uh, in, in learning about them, was that they're not just interested in developing better doctors and nurses and med, med techs and medical assistants and receptionists, et cetera. They are intentional about creating stronger, more self-empowered, more self-confident human beings. And if you think about it, it makes perfectly good sense because someone who is self-confident is more likely to speak up when they see an opportunity to improve or when they see the possibility of of a patient being injured. <clears throat> or even a worker being injured. Uh, one of the one of the astonishing things to me was that uh, if you are a healthcare worker, you're in one of the most dangerous uh, industries there is. There's more probability that you're going to get hurt on the job working in the healthcare industry than if you're building houses than the construction industry. Wow. So this hospital has figured out out of respect for the worker. We want to help them become stronger, more self-confident human beings. That's good for them as a person. It's also good for us. It's terrific for our patients because there's a, there's a direct line of sight between a self-confident worker and safety for, the, for, the, for their patient. Mm-hmm. Because a self-confident worker who is not working in a culture of fear is more likely to speak up. Did uh, you get insight into the specifics of what they were doing to develop confidence within their staff? Yeah, great question. So I'll give you one example. 
Um, every Friday afternoon, <clears throat> they have something called report outs where um, the various teams that are doing these, their lean initiatives come to a single spot. It's, a, it's an auditorium inside the, where, uh, inside the, uh, the hospital. It'll probably seat 125 to 150 people. And they do these report outs. And each report out lasts exactly five minutes, not five minutes and one second. It's five minutes. And um, they always have two people from the team reporting on what that team did. One of the interesting things to me was um, common logic would suggest if you had a, ten of, a team of 10 people working in a, some kind of an improvement initiative, probably the leader of that team or maybe the top two leaders of that team would be the one doing these report outs. Not so. It's two people from the rank and file. They do that intentionally because they realize that public speaking is the greatest fear of mankind. (laughs) And if they could help their people speak publicly, do it in a safe place where it's non-threatening, they they take as much threat out out of the occasion than they possibly can. In doing that, they create a more self-confident human being. So give you an example of the, of the safety net, if you will. So there's always two people doing these report outs. The first words by the person who's giving the, their piece of it is always, I want to thank so-and-so who's standing right next to me. They, they say that by, by design. It's not because they're nice. It's, it's by design. I want to thank so-and-so who's standing next to me, as well as the rest of my team. When it comes to the person, uh, the second person, it's always, I want to thank so-and-so who's standing next to me and the rest of my team. So they create this safety net. And then when we got done, it's, it's these report outs take an hour. When, when the one I was participating in, when they got done, the chief medical officer, the probably the number two guy in the hospital was in attendance. And he stood up and to do a debrief with everybody in the room, as well as the people who were joining via, via video streaming. The first thing he said was, I want to recognize this woman who was sitting in the back of the auditorium. Today was her first opportunity to participate in report out. And I just want to acknowledge you by name, acknowledge this woman by name for your excellent, excellent conversation and contribution to our hospital. He did, he went through his, his debrief. The last words he spoke was, again, I want to recognize this woman sitting in the back of the room. Thank you for the courage of participating with us today. We hope to get to see you more. So that didn't happen just because they're nice. It happened because there was an intent to create a culture, to create an experience of safety where somebody who may not feel all that self-empowered, they may be a little insecure. They're put into an experience where they're held in safety, and yet able to take a risk. One of my questions to the woman who was uh, uh, my tour guide, I said, so um, how do, you know, the traditional model of a leader, problem solver, project manager, take charge, et cetera. 
uh, how do they do in this kind of a, of a culture? And she kind of laughed. She said, um, most of them don't make it very long. If, if we hire them from outside our, comp- our organization, most of them don't, don't last. It drives them crazy. Um, but those who have grown up within our system, that's the word she used. She said, we see people every day who are insecure. And in our system, they flourish. The word she used was they blossom. They blossom into leaders, managers. They have a clear path to uh, growing within the organization. Um, but it all is based on this, this way of doing leadership that supports and recognizes out of respect the basic raw humanity, intelligence, et cetera, of, of their workforce. So there's this beautiful juxtaposition, Dan, that you have illustrated from the first story you shared about uh, doing the value stream mapping and this acknowledgement that there was a problem that was clear to solve, but that no action was taken. Mm-hmm. In this current example of this hospital organization where they were very intentional about the, the things that they set up within the system, the how-to mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. leadership mm-hmm. Um, that created a culture mm-hmm. that allowed people to flourish and blossom. Set up perfectly. This is the billion-dollar question. What's the difference between those two organizations? What did they What did they do differently? How did this? You could use the hospital example or any other that yep. you studied. Yep. How do those organizations know what are the right steps, the right mm-hmm. systems to put, you know, subsystems to put in place within yep. the system? Yeah, create the proper culture and organization. Yeah, great question. Um, and there's no one um, one solution because, in fact, the, the metaphor I use in the book is genetics and DNA. Every organization has their own DNA, and the beauty of DNA, human DNA, and using that as a metaphor, is that every human body is different. Your different your DNA probably looks a whole lot like mine, but it's still your DNA. It's not mine. You have dark hair. I have light hair. You know, we're different. And the same thing is true of, of organizations. So no one way is always the solution. So, but I'll give you a, an example of the first organization, the state agency. Their system, their leadership system rewarded them for their proximity to the governor. Um if they were close to the governor, physically, financially, budget-wise, then the better they were in the sense of, of a leader, more respected, et cetera. They weren't rewarded for looking at their rank and file and giving them a voice. They, I'm sure they, they talked about it. It was probably something that came up in conversation. It would be sort of politically insensitive not to talk about inclusion, giving your workforce a voice, um, you know, giving them respect. Yet the reality was they weren't rewarded for that. On the other hand, in the healthcare organization I just mentioned, leaders are rewarded for um, their connecting with their workforce and giving them a voice. It's, It's as simple as that. They are rewarded for it. Um, the manufacturing company uh, that I that I referenced, um, they have trained 
all of their leaders to the principles of servant leadership. And they've even gone so far as to change their titles. So um, if you're an organ, if you're a, a, like a production lead or a production manager or something in this organization, they don't call you boss. You know, they don't call you my production lead, my manager. They call you mentor. That's your title, mentor, which is a better reflection of that relationship. So if I'm working for you, I don't understand that you're my boss. I understand that you're my mentor. Your job is to mentor me in how to eliminate waste, but also to help me grow within the company. And if I say, I want to do that job over there, your job is to help me figure out how to do it and to, and to sort of grease those skids of how to do that. Um, in fact, uh, they, have, they, have, they, do, they do training every day. It goes from 8 o'clock a.m. to 8.05 a.m. They have broken every job function down into five-minute increments. So if I tell you, I want to learn how to work in the purchasing area, your job of, as my mentor is to help facilitate that and to make sure that I have five minutes at the start of my morning to go over and work with somebody for five minutes in, the, in, in purchasing. And the reason they do it in five minutes is because you can train me to do almost any little piece of a, of a process in five minutes. The next day, I'm probably going to be the one who's teaching that. Okay. Because, you know, we all know that the best way to learn anything is to teach it. Mm-hmm. So they've broken everything down in a five-minute increment so I could learn it one day and the next day I could teach it. And your job as my boss is to mentor me in that process. This distinction, this distinction of, of changing the title of manager, lead, leader to mentor, um, it's kind of blowing my mind. It, it, it's, it's simple. It's nuanced. Um, I haven't actually heard or seen it, seen it done anywhere. There are certainly many organizations that talk about the role of being a mentor within the, within the organization, yep. but the role is a mentor. It completely shifts even the role of, of what it would mean. You know, so many people aspire to be um, a manager because that's mm-hmm. the next level that's in front of me. So right. I want those people make more money and then I want right. the, next level, the next level. Right. Right. Um, but if you were to say, well, this role is completely service oriented and, you know, you're actually now going to be giving back to the role that you were in before, mm-hmm. there's um, the power dynamic shifts. You oh, know? absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Of, um, of responsibility, the flow yep. of, of control. Yep. Um, it shifts quite a bit. And Not quite a bit. It shifts dramatically. Yeah. And maybe it's your second book, Dan. I don't know. But like that, <laughs> that notion right there, that, that concept yep. in and of itself given the right organization that has the right rewards and, and punishment structures in place in mm-hmm. order to have that culture manifested, um, it could be revolutionary. I mean, I, I certainly, in my career, when I was an internal employee, I, I never liked having a manager, but it was, mm-hmm. uh, it was this structured kind of um, mm-hmm. check-in, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna yep. to fix what's broken right. uh, close to going to help right. lift people up. Right. It's really neat. Well, I'll give you um, one example in that in that manufacturing company. So um, I'm going on through on this tour, and um, we stopped at this one workstation where they're they were taking a large pieces of foam core material and cutting it into parts for furniture. 
and uh, the woman who was doing the cutting, and it's a it's a big high tech cutting machine. The woman who's doing the the cutting tells us this story, and she hadn't been with the company more than just like four or five months, um, maybe not even that. Um, but she she explained to us how um, she, she was getting four parts out of this larger piece of foam core raw material. And she recognized that if that if that material had just a slightly different configuration, that she can get five parts out of that. And so she tells us, you know, I, I went to my mentor to see if this was a good idea. And I'm talking to my mentor about how to make this change and who do I need to talk to to get the phone core material in a, in a different configuration. And I noticed that every time she turned, she used the word mentor, she would s- turn slightly to this uh, fairly short, slight woman standing right next to her. And uh, so as she gets done with her story, I, I have to ask the, you know, that obvious dumb question. I said, so is this woman your supervisor? And she looked at me like I was maybe somebody from outer space and she goes, well, I guess so, but we just call them mentors. But it was, it was again, it was that beautiful description of the, of the relationship that they were trying to establish between the, quote, leader and their, and their team. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of generosity that comes from being in the role of, of a mentor. Mm. It's different than even leader or manager, right? I mean, yeah. was, um, giving of their time and expertise out of the the goodness of their heart, you know, to to yep. pay it forward or or right. to give back. I suppose um, you got to write you got to write your second book here. <laughs> this is the problem. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Let me. <laughs> Let me get this first one, or actually, that would this is my second one, but let me get it launched and up and running good. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a brilliant concept. Um, I, I like to wrap up all the interviews with a, a couple just kind of quick, I call them rewind questions. Sure. Uh, to get a sense of, you know, how your brain works and what's important to you. And then we'll wrap things up here in a minute. So I'm just yeah. going to fire these off. Uh, no right or wrong answers here, whatever okay. is true for you in the moment. Okay. You can have dinner with anyone throughout history, alive or dead. Who mm. are they and why? Uh, dinner with anybody uh, throughout history, alive or dead. Um, well, this might sound odd, but it would probably be Jesus of Nazareth. Because he is the only guy that I know of in history that has started a worldwide movement without an army. He did it based on a culture of love, and and uh, he started a movement that's never been replicated. Wow, that's a that is a great answer. Yes, and uh, yeah, without violence, but with love, right, to change the world in that way. Yep. Uh, is there a a quote or a mantra or motto that you live by? A quote that I live by. Uh, um. Well, I, I, you know, the, the tried and true one would be, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, professionally, though, um, I'm really driven by a quote from Deming where he said, if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. And, and that, for whatever reason, that always just like captures my attention. And at some level, it's, it's, it's part of the ethos of this book 
because it's it's the, the the book is saying if you don't know how you do leadership, you really don't know what you're doing as a leader. Because the best organizations always say, this is how we do leadership. And it's always some point, there's always a process in there someplace. Yeah, a common language, right. uh, guidelines, absolutely. Speaking of mentors, has there been a mentor in your life and career that has been truly an unlocker for you? You know, that's a, that's a gosh, you ask a lot of really good questions. <laughs> um, that is an area of my life, both personally and professionally, that if I had to go back and do it over again, I would be way more intentional about um, finding and looking for finding mentors. Um, I think so many times now, um, I mean, there obviously there's been there's been people that have impacted my thinking. There's been people who have have had you know enormous influence um, on my life. But I think so many times, if I had a mentor or two or three, um, where could I be now? What could I be doing now? Would I be doing what I'm doing now with this book? What I've been doing it ten years ago, and uh, and something tells me I I could have done a lot more with the time that I, that I have, if I had been intentional about seeking out some mentors. What would you have done differently when you say being intentional, what would that have looked like? You or, know, I think from the perspective of if you were giving advice to someone who's listening, Dan, who can, who hears you saying this and goes, okay, that's, that's a good piece of insight from somebody who's been there. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you have done differently? I think I would have, first of all, I, I, I think the first, the first question is, well, what am I looking for? What do I think I need? Yeah. So if I was working, um, if I was, so my, my first organization that I worked for as a, as a management consultant um, was a pretty large nationally recognized um, consulting organization. We had, I don't know. 10,000 employees or some crazy thing. Um, if, if I was to do that over again, um, and I loved working for this organization, I loved my team. It was a, it was, we had a great team to, to work with. Um, if I was to do that, have do that experience over again, I would have intentionally gone out to look at and found some mentors within the company who are maybe doing some different kinds of consulting work than I was doing just to get their perspective on, on, on the particular discipline that they were bringing to the, or, to the organization, uh, the, the disciplines that they were bringing to their, to their, their customers, how were they doing it and really try to develop a relationship with the people who were doing the best job. Um, and that would be the key. It's like, Okay, who's who's doing the best job here on a holistic basis, not just you know temporarily triggering you know a, a generating a, a lot of revenue, but holistically over a long period of time, who are the people who are really doing a good job, both with their own teams and with their with their customers as well? And I would have said, hey, can I talk to you like have coffee once a month and just pick your brain? Yeah. So sought out those people that had uh, demonstrated uh, strong competence as a, as a generalist practitioner and also diversified, you know, your portfolio skills. Right. Right. Um, Well, it's not too late, Dan. It's not too (laughs) late. 
Thanks. Maybe I'll be, uh, I'll be calling you someday. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. And it, I'm, I'm continue to be um, just deeply curious around the research that you've done and what you're learning around organizations and how we can better understand um, how to take the notion of uh, high impact, high value leadership and really bring it to life in organizations. Yeah. And thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to an episode of The Leadership Mind. New episodes will be coming out every few weeks, so please stay tuned. And in the meantime, think about what stories are you telling yourself? What realities are you crafting in your mind that may not be true and may be limiting your ability to connect, lead, and grow? Thanks for listening and have a great day.